the National Archives podcast series. The untold story of the RAF's Black Second World War flyers over Europe. Presented by Mark Johnson. This talk was recorded on the 10th of April 2014 at the National Archives, Kew. Well, good afternoon and uh, welcome back to those of you I've met before and uh, welcome to those I haven't. So what I'm going to do uh, for the next 45 to 50 minutes is to uh, walk you through the history of the contribution made to the Royal Air Force during the Second World War by um, Caribbean volunteers and uh, not all black, okay, but the ones I've focused on are the black Caribbean volunteers uh, uh, for reasons that are probably obvious uh, and which I will um, uh, dive down into in the next few slides. Um, the Caribbean volunteers, however, uh, were not the first black flyers um, to make a contribution to Britain. There were actually black airmen active during the First World War who are uh, rarely mentioned. Um, and there, th there were quite a number, probably, we found probably about a dozen, but there are three in particular who are, who, who are best known. And the first, uh, as you can see on this slide, um, titled World War I Black Flyers, was Eugene Bullard. And he, Eugene Bullard was actually um, a half, uh, I think he was Creek Indian and half um, Southern US uh, black, who uh, left America because of racial prejudice and became a boxer in Scotland, and then eventually settled in France and joined the Lafayette Squadron in France during World War I as a pilot. Um, and if you have any, anyone has seen um, that film and suddenly the name has escaped me, um, about the Lafayette Squadron during World War I, which features a black pilot. If you've, if you've seen the film, you'll, you'll recognize that. Most people dismiss that as, as uh, politically correct nonsense. But in fact, uh, it's based on Bullard. It's actually, it was in fact a black pilot. He was very successful, shot down a number of enemy aircraft. A very sad um, ending to his story. He was never accepted in the US. Uh, he, he, he stayed in France until the start of the Second World War. He voluntarily served um, in combat against the invading German forces and was shot uh, through the spine. Um, he returned to the States uh, after the war, in badly, still badly injured, uh, attended a theater in New York and was beaten up for being a black man in a, attending a theater. And he died of his injuries a few years later. Um, it was then posthumously honored by the French. Uh, but never by the Americans. Uh, the second character in the center there is Robbie Clark. And Robbie Clark was a chauffeur in Kingston, Jamaica, apparently working for somebody uh, fairly influential, but just, just a chauffeur, nothing, nothing special in his own right. And he um, was either assisted or made his own way uh, to England uh, and joined the Royal Flying Corps in 1915, initially as a mechanic based on his chauffeur experience. In those days, anybody who drove a car had to know how to maintain a car. Um, but he then volunteered um, for flying service. And the story that's told, and I'm not sure how true it is, is that he was befriended by one of the pilots who took him up in the air and discovered that he had some talent. And he then became a pilot himself. And he flew an RE-8 uh, reconnaissance aircraft uh, over the Western Front, uh, was shot um, through the spine again. There's a lot of shooting through the spine. Hang on. Uh, by uh, a German aircraft that pounced on them and managed to uh, land his plane before passing out and thus saving his observer um, because, of course, there were no parachutes in those days. And he survived, um, spent many months in hospital, was repatriated to Jamaica with full um, pension and lived in, until his 80s. 
Um, uh, of course, forgotten by all, including most Jamaicans. I don't think many Jamaicans have ever heard of him. Uh, we certainly never heard about him in school. But the first known black military flyer was actually half Turkish, half Nigerian. Uh, Ahmed Ali uh, Shalikten, I think is the pronunciation, who flew with the forces of the Ottoman Empire, having been trained in Berlin. And I've got a wonderful photograph on the next slide, uh, which actually shows him. So you can see these Turkish officers in the center or, and, and on the right, and then there's a German engineer and what seems to be a German officer on the left. And of course, our black pilot, who actually flew the aircraft that they're gathered around, uh, is, uh, is in the background, um, almost hidden, but, uh, but certainly there. And uh, he flew uh, throughout the First World War. So there's, there's, there, there's a history there. It, wasn't, it didn't start with World War II. So let's look briefly at the Caribbean in 1939, the beginning of the Second World War. Um, what I want to do is just give you a sense of the culture that these people were coming from, because there are a lot of misconceptions about the Caribbean and about the black volunteers. And two, two key misconceptions is that the Caribbean is a, an area in which people lie in hammocks and drink rum. And this is one of the comments made by RAF recruiters when it was proposed that black volunteers be, be sought, uh, that you know, basically they, they, were, they would be untrainable because that's all they did. Of course, that's nonsense. Um, the Caribbean in 1939 is actually uh, a region with one of the highest literacy rates in the world. Um, in Guyana, for example, uh, adult literacy was running at 87%, which was uh, better than most parts of Europe. Um, and people focused on um, you know, Tony Blair's mantra, education, 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 before Tony Blair was, uh, was born. Um, and, and this, in fact, is my, in fact, if you go one slide up, that, that's my grandfather, uh, very serious Victorian um, school headmaster and later uh, school inspector. And uh, he used to come to our house and inspect me. Uh, I had to sit on his knee and I had to read him. My father would be in, in absolute just panic for days and days and days before he arrived. He'd come from Jamaica, we were in the UK, and he'd fly up from Jamaica with boxes of oranges and bananas. This is the 1960s. And, um, and those were amazing gifts to get a box of oranges. And then I had to sit on his knee and, and he would test my, 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 my reading skills. And it was a terrifying period of my life and I've not yet recovered. Um, even looking at the photograph now worries me. So. And this is his school um, in the mountains of Jamaica. He's in St. Mary. Uh, this is his class. He's a very proud headmaster of this school. And you can see that all the children are barefoot. And my great uncle, who was on the first slide and who you'll see more of later, uh, attended that school. So these are not, this is the other myth, that, that, the, that the black volunteers from the Caribbean were coming from a particularly privileged part of society. Uh, some of them certainly did but many of them did not. I would say that the majority did not. They came from very, very normal, humble backgrounds. And what made them stand out was their focus on educating themselves, the hard work and commitment that they'd put in, and that's what qualified them for RAF services. It had not, nothing to do with their social standing or anything along those lines. This is my aunt, by the way, another very intimidating character. You did not want to get ill, and you certainly would not pretend to be ill and then approach her. Um, and that's uh, the Blair family, my, my grandmother was a Blair, uh, the sister of the headmaster you saw previously, Blair family at the beach. And this is the cottage that my uncle, my great uncle grew up in, so little more than a shack. So I'm just making the point that people were volunteering um, from the, the humblest of backgrounds and achieving great things as we'll see. 
So that's, that's where they were coming from. Uh, there's a lot more, obviously, to, we could talk about there, but I have limited time. Um, let me give you some context about what was happening uh, in, in the Second World War uh, at the point when these volunteers were asked to, to step forward. So the RAF in 1940 was a battered and bruised organization. Uh, hundreds of pilots had been killed during the Battle of France, which had been lost. And of course, the Germans were now sitting on the other side of the English Channel, um, and they, were, they had attempted to conquer the skies over England so that they could launch their naval invasion. Well, they'd, been just, they'd just barely been defeated by the Royal Air Force, uh, and it was now time to strike back. A new bomber force was needed. The decision was made that Britain was going to build a thousand bomber strong air force, or more than a thousand bombers. They wanted the capacity to put a thousand bombers over Germany in a single night, which meant having more than a thousand aircraft. So they needed thousands of new air crew, and uh, they were already losing significant numbers of their bomber air crew, uh, over 5% fatalities on a nightly basis. Okay? On a nightly basis. The statistical chance of surviving the, the, the compulsory tour for volunteers, which was 30 missions in the first tour, followed by a second tour of 20 missions, the chance of surviving the first 30 was zero, statistically. Crews did survive because it was the newcomers who tended to get shot down fastest. Um, but, the, but statistically, you had zero chance of survival. So we're talking about, it's an, it's an incredibly bloody, um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's something like World War I in the trenches in terms of you know, the rates of loss and the, and the potential for survival. And that's, that's what they were facing. Um, and these are people that, I'm, you know, I'd say I lived with my, I knew my great uncle for 40 years. So, and the, the, these are the sorts of things that they faced. Quite, quite incredible now to think about it. So that, so that was the context in terms of the RAF. In the Caribbean itself, you, know, you would sort of think the Caribbean was remote and not affected by the war, but in fact the Caribbean was the, uh, the scene of a battle called the Battle of the Caribbean, in which a German U-boat uh, wolf pack, um, comprising 10 U-boats, supported by five Italian submarines, um, operated uh, for about, about 18 months during what's called Operation New Land, which you can, uh, you can Google if you're interested. There's quite a lot online about it. And they focused on the oil tankers that were moving from South America, particularly Venezuela, to the, the Gulf Coast of the United States and the East Coast and bringing oil uh, into the US. And they sunk about 60 ships, many of them oil tankers. Um, 15,000 West Indians, by the way, served as merchant crews on those and other ships during the war. Uh, one third of those men died. Um, so there's, a, there's another story to tell there which uh, hasn't really been told yet. So, so the Caribbean was very much part of the war. And the people in the Caribbean were very aware they were affected by these operations. The battles took place very often just off the coastline. Um, there was shelling of facilities by, by U-boats with their guns. They would shell, shell the oil terminals. Um, American aircraft were sinking U-boats. Survivors of the ships and the U-boats were being uh, brought ashore, and in the case of the Germans, being interned uh, in Jamaica and other locations. So the, the Caribbean was very, very involved in the war already. Now, up until this point of time, in time, even if a black man in the Caribbean wanted to join the British forces, um, he could not join as an officer, or she could not join as an officer. Um, the British official policy, written policy, stated that only British-born men or British-born parents of pure European descent could receive officers' commissions in any of 
His Majesty's Armed Services. This, of course, also disqualified South Africans, you know, Australians, anybody who was not British-born and of pure European descent. But, I mean, not a lot to choose from between that statement and what we were fighting against in Germany, to be honest, um, other than the fact that there were no camps. But the, 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 the mindset behind the policy was very similar. And suddenly, in October 1939, before the Battle of France, okay, before the losses had been suffered, very important point, but just after the war had been declared, two or three weeks after the war had been declared, that bar was lifted. Okay. Uh, the Navy and the, and the Army did not move particularly quickly to allow officers of color to join their ranks, but the Air Force moved very quickly and organized a, a recruiting drive. And as a result, most volunteers from the Caribbean entered the Air Force. So the Air Force was actually, it's actually a really, really important success story in terms of integration and acceptance. In 1939, the Air Force opened its arms to, to volunteers from, from both Africa and the Caribbean. And the result was that um, well we've, we've identified 495 Caribbean volunteers uh, who joined from, from these nations, primarily the, the first uh, seven listed here with Jamaica and Trinidad um, having the largest numbers. And here you can see the number killed from those, uh, that group of volunteers or those groups of volunteers, uh, just about a third, 30% were killed. Uh, and some of the men are shown here. All, all of, all of the, the, both these men were killed and half the men in this picture, for example, died. So they had the same casualty rates as, as the other RAF uh, crews. There was no special treatment and they were flying the same missions. Why does a subject of an imperial power join that power's army and fight when they're not obliged to do so? Because they were volunteers, they were not conscripted. Okay. I, when I interviewed survivors, including my great uncle, they were very, very clear. Okay. This was not about king and country or any sort of brainwashing that they might have undergone. They understood that there was a straight line relationship between that character on the left making his speeches about the Jews and, and Eastern Europe and Nazi plans for, for what they would do with all the conquered lands, the concentration camp system, the persecution of, of Jews and gypsies and Poles and, and Russians, 2.5 million Russians who died of starvation in German captivity, and another crime that's not really been spoken about much, uh, and slavery. And they knew that if Hitler defeated England, to quote my uncle, okay, many people don't think about what would have happened in Jamaica if Hitler had defeated Britain but we certainly would have returned to slavery. And what you've got to remember is that slavery only ended in 1834. Okay? My uncle was born in 1919, so my great uncle sat on the knee or the knees of old people in his village who had been born in slavery, and I sat on his knee. So that's how, so how close to us slavery is today, and it was that much closer um, 70, 80 years ago. So they, they were very clear as to why they were going to fight for His Majesty. They were not fighting for His Majesty, they were fighting for themselves and for their families. So who were these men? What sort of men were they? Well, a really good example here is Billy Strawn. We say Strawn in Jamaica. Some people pronounce that Strachan, but we pronounce it Strawn. Born and raised in Kingston. He made his own way, again, quite common, made his own way to Britain by ship. Uh, when war broke out, so he's making his own way to buy ship across an Atlantic infested with U-boats, by the way. On arrival in London, he went 
on foot to the air ministry and knocks on the door at seven in the morning and said, I've come to join the RAF. And the corporal inside told him to, yeah, percentage, ampersand, pound, pound, off, okay? Um, but he was undeterred, he persisted, and he later flew 30 missions as a wireless operator in Wellington bombers over uh, Germany and, and, uh, and the Low Countries. And he then retrained as a bomber pilot and flew another 15 missions over Europe in a Lancaster, fly, piloting a Lancaster. Survived the war and returned to Jamaica. And here is the gentleman himself standing on the left with his crew. This is the Wellington crew, so this is when he was a wireless operator. He refused to be left out. Uh, these, were, these, these were dogged, determined individuals. They were not going to be put off by a few racist corporals. They were going to insist, and they demanded to be allowed to risk their lives. He talked about um, racism quite extensively. And one of the stories he told was about his own attitudes. So when he arrived from Jamaica, um, he encountered his Batman. Very smooth Jeeves type, he said, exactly the kind of character he'd been led to expect. Uh, meanwhile, he described himself, these are his words, as just a little colored boy from the Caribbean. So when he first met this Batman, he instinctively called the Batman sir. Coming from the Caribbean, encountering a white person, that, that there's, a, there's a lot of com complex issues going on there in terms of the relationship. And to have somebody white acting in a subservient role to you when you've just come from the Caribbean in 1940 is a very challenging uh, adaptation to make. But no, sir, the Batman hastily corrected. It is I who call you, sir. Again, think about the period, think about the era, and think about the change in attitude that this man had to make in a matter of hours, having been told that he was now going to be the Batman for a man from the Caribbean, and he would have to call him sir. And he, he had to make a huge change as well. And that's, that's a really important part of the story. And so you have these volunteers like Basil Johnson from the Bahamas, who, again, had to insist on being allowed to join. He, he, he volunteered four times before he was accepted on the fifth occasion, interacting with your tally-ho chaps types uh, on the left and your chaps types on the right, all in the same unit. And a really important point here is that whereas, for example, with the American forces, they had segregated black units, the famous Tuskegee Airmen, for example. In the RAF, none of that happened. Everybody was mixed in together. Okay? So you would have a a New Zealand gunner, a, a, a navigator from Jamaica, a bomb aimer from Newcastle. They all flew in the same aircraft. They all lived in the same quarters. They all fought and served together. There was no segregation uh, in force whatsoever, despite the fact that the color bar had only been lifted the year before. Recruitment was also attempted in West Africa. It was far less successful. So whereas the Caribbean, with its population of about, at the time, probably about 6 million people, was able to put forward 500 aircrew. Uh, in the whole of West Africa, only 50 aircrew were identified, although there were, there were thousands of volunteers. There are conflicting reasons cited. So the Air Ministry claimed that the presence of malaria contravened the medical policy, which is that any candidate had to be malaria-free for a minimum period of six months before being accepted for service. And therefore, West Africans were by and large ruled out because almost everybody had been exposed to malaria within, a six, within the last six months. Unofficially, it's, it's been said that, in, in fact, it was fear of African independence movements, which were already becoming very active, uh, and a fear of training um, Africans in military skills that could then be used against the British colonial rule at the end of the war. So it's debatable. I suspect that this, to me, this makes more sense, but. Anyway, the end result was that only 50 volunteers were selected from Africa. 
Johnny Smythe joined from um, Sierra Leone, and he later was shot down, we'll talk about that again a little bit later, shot down over Europe and spent um, two or three years in, uh, two years in Stalaglyft I as a prisoner of war, survived that experience and returned to uh, the UK and became, I believe, became a judge. So they'd volunteered, they'd been accepted, they'd arrived in, the, in England in some cases or been recruited in the Caribbean, and now they went to train. And uh, my uncle was sent to Moncton in Ontario in December, okay, having never left um, Jamaica. He'd never flown, never been on a ship, and never left St. Elizabeth, Jamaica. And now he found himself in Moncton and in three feet of snow, um, cold as the devil, as he described it. Um, they traveled by ship and to the US and then uh, to Canada by train. When John Blair and his party boarded their American merchant ship, they were not allowed to use the hammocks that had been provided for them. Um, the crew insisted that they had to sleep in the hold. So these are officer volunteers for the Air Force and they, they took the, the whole journey in the hold. And it wasn't a direct journey because that ship went all the way around the Caribbean picking up more volunteers and putting them all in the hold. So they squatted for, I think, about two weeks. So that was their welcome. However, they moved on from that. They learned their trades. They, uh, here's, and here's, here's John Blair on the left with his group of all-white um, RAF volunteers. And there he is, a Jamaican volunteer, um, very much part of the team. I never felt that RAF training and selection processes uh, were conducted on the basis of anything other than merit. And they trained as pilots, as navigators, flight engineers, wireless operators. About half of them became air gunners. They then crewed up. And this involved the different disciplines standing in groups in a very large hangar, a hangar that can accommodate a bomber or a couple of bombers. And then the pilots would come in, and they'd sort of have a group of wireless operators and navigators there and gunners over here. And the pilots would come in and walk around, and they would literally just like the look of people and pick a couple of gunners because they like the look of them, and they like you as a navigator. And all, all the African and Caribbean men were selected. There's no, there's no case that I've come across of, you know, a black man being left standing in the room when everybody else had left. And not only were they selected, but they were adopted in some cases almost as mascots. So it sounds racist to say it, but that's the fact that here the airplane has been named after its black navigator, who is from Nigeria, uh, and the aircraft has been actually named the Black Prince. So, so there's, there's a real adoption taking place. This is not you know, people being foisted on the white crew and the white crew being forced to work with them. They're actually embracing this change. And I, I, do, I probably sound like I'm overselling that point, but I really think that's, this is one of the important lessons of this, this whole story, that it's possible to implement changes like that effectively. There weren't only bomber pilots or bomber crewmen. There were fighter pilots. There were Spitfire pilots and hurricane pilots and typhoon pilots from the Caribbean. This is a really important photograph because here we have Flight Lieutenant Vincent Bunting, originally of Panama, but later of Jamaica, Jamaican parentage, who grew up in Kingston. And the famous uh, South African ace, Sailor Milan, if you've heard of him at all. What fascinates me is that Sailor Milan went back to South Africa, and very few people know that he then became a driving force in the anti-apartheid movement. And I look at that photograph, and they served together in the same squadron. Sailor Milan was his boss. And I think there must be a connection between his anti-apartheid stance and his experience of working with a Caribbean airman. He must have gone home and thought, this is not right because I've worked with black people, and I know that they're just the same as us. Uh, and I, I, I take that away from that picture. He survived the war. Um, Flight Sergeant James Hyde of Trinidad did not. 
Um, he was shot down not long after this photograph was taken uh, over Nijmegen. But again, he's on our website. We had contact with a Dutch person who had visited the website and lives near the uh, Jonkerbos Cemetery where Hyde is buried. He then went to the cemetery about two weeks ago, took photographs of the grave, posted in Dutch, and then lots of other Dutch people commented and thanked James Hyde for his service. Uh, so again, you know, these guys are still making, building bridges across cultural barriers 70 years later through their, their sacrifice. And there are others, Sergeant Tucker, Sergeant Dowdy, Flight Lieutenant Kelsick from Montserrat. Um, Tucker was killed in a sweep over France. Dowdy became a bomber pilot. Kelsick survived the war flying typhoons uh, after D-Day, shooting up um, enemy troop and train movements. Sergeant Joseph on the right, shot down and killed over Europe from, Trin from Trinidad, weeks of Barbados, survived the war, both of them Spitfire pilots. So there were dozens and dozens of Caribbean Spitfire pilots, pilots engaged in operations and paying the ultimate price. In addition to the airmen, um, we had 6,000 Caribbean ground crew personnel. I mentioned my boss earlier. This is my boss, Carl Chantrell, lovely gentleman, still alive. I interviewed him last summer, and I'll be taking a copy of my book to him um, in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, 6,000 of them came, trained in Yorkshire at Filey, um, and then worked as coders and ground crew uh, engineers, bomb, loading up bombs, uh, and so forth. There were female volunteers from the Caribbean, about 100 in, in total. Uh, Lillian Bader on the left became the first black woman to serve in the British uh, regular armed forces in a technical capacity. Sonia Thompson from Kingston is just one of many uh, Caribbean women who came and served, mostly in technical capacities. They were accomplished flyers, the men who flew. They, they were no different from their white counterparts. The RAF official reports that were produced on their performance said that there were no suspensions, the ground and air percentages of above average and below average suggested that they fall very much in line with the white trainees. So there was no, there was no difference in terms of performance um, between the Caribbean men. And you can see here uh, the decorations that they're wearing. This is at the end of the, of the war. This photograph was taken. These are survivors. Has anybody read the book To Sir With Love or um, seen the film To Sir With Love? Okay. Um, the author, uh, E.R. Braithwaite, is here. But there was racism. Um, Billy Strawn said, when you arrived anywhere as the first black man, you were treated and fated, uh, or treated like a teddy bear. You were loved and fated. Two they coped with was when three or more arrived that things got sharp. So interesting observation. So they trained. They joined. They trained. They'd been crewed up. Now they had to fly. They had to get into fragile four-engine bomber aircraft carrying 9,000 pounds of high explosives and 2,000 pounds of aviation fuel and seven people and fly them over, the, over enemy territory through anti-aircraft fire and the night fighters and everything else to drop those bombs on their targets. Cy Grant from Guyana. Cy Grant became a musician after the war on BBC television and he was the voice of one of the Captain Scarlet characters. Captain Green. He was Captain Green. So, even amidst the deafening drone of scores of other aircraft, the muffled explosions below, the glow of the target area, the flak, the sweeping searchlights, and the sudden bumps as the aircraft rode the frenzied skies, I never questioned what I was doing there. Yeah, they knew what they were doing there. What were they doing there? What they were doing there was truly terrible. The aim of Bomber Command 
should be unambiguously stated. The destruction of German cities, the killing of German workers, and the disruption of civilized life throughout Germany. And that's according to Arthur Harris, Bomber Command's commander. So th there, there was no hiding the objective of this campaign. This campaign was intended to slaughter hundreds of thousands of civilians. That was the strategic aim as stated by its commander. And that's what the Caribbean men and the British men and the Australians and the New Zealanders and the Poles were engaged in. The bombs had awful effects and they were designed to have awful effects. Some of them weighed as much as 20,000 pounds a single bomb. They obliterated cities. A thousand bomber raid would be sent out and its goal was to kill a city. Okay, and many nights separate as another city would die. This is the center of Cologne. An archeologist who looked at the center of Dresden, where one of the worst raids took place, is written a German archeologist, we can see that the temperatures must have ranged between 1300 and 1400 degrees centigrade in the area, uh, and the area lacked oxygen. This is from the soil samples. Okay, so this is below ground temperature. Above ground, the temperature must have been even higher, perhaps as high as 1600 degrees centigrade. Human beings were transformed into ashes. People melted in the street. That's the effect of our bombing campaign. And you can see the remains of, this is Cologne Cathedral. So if you've been to Cologne, you can imagine uh, what that must have looked like and felt like. The US Strategic Bombing Survey of 1945 concluded that there were 305,000 German civilian deaths, that 780,000 people were wounded, and 7.5 million were made homeless. But other sources claim that up, there were up to 600,000 dead, stating that 300,000 died in Dresden alone. And I, I, I find the second figure more convincing. So the, it, it's reasonable to question the ethics of such a campaign. But I actually think it's justified, despite those figures. And it's justified for very simple reasons. Nazi Germany invaded and subjugated Europe. This was an unprovoked and illegal invasion. Germany then proceeded to perpetrate the Holocaust and other crimes, killing 10 times more people in, in concentration camps alone than were killed during the bombing campaign. She triggered overall the death of at least 40 million people, some say 50 million. And bombing was the only response available to the West. There were limits on its accuracy, and Germany's cities were thus the only viable target. And so I believe that for all its horrors, this was still a justified act. The men who flew were not just dropping bombs from safety. They were facing terrible threats, as I've said. A third of them died. They faced a range of threats. They faced the night fighters coming in. And the reason why the inexperienced crews tended to be killed off very quickly was that you wanted to fly in the bomber stream. So you have a stream of 1,000 aircraft. And it's not 1,000 aircraft wide. It's a dozen aircraft wide and hundreds and hundreds of aircraft long strung out through the night air. And you want to be in the middle of that to be safe. And if you're inexperienced and you're too low or too high or off to one side, that's when you get shot up by a night fighter because the night fighter is not going to fly in amongst 20 bombers, all of them bristling with machine guns. He's going to pick off the guys who are outliers. And it tended to be the new crews who got, in, got themselves into that position and then got shot out of the sky. You've got the flak coming up. You have bombs from above. Many aircraft were destroyed by friendly bombs being dropped by other aircraft above them. They couldn't see each other in the dark. Okay? They flew into each other. 
about half of all losses resulted from either bombs from above or collisions, and the other half from enemy action. So they were flying into each other. There would be huge explosions brighter than the sun. Other aircraft would then explode as well as a result, and you'd have these two, three, four, nine thousand pound explosions going off in the sky around you. Um, accidents on the ground, weather, icing, wind, cloud, all of these things added up. They were flying against tremendously well-trained aces who had been fighting and flying since 1939, in some cases since 1937. They've flown in Spain. Um, these are just some examples of night fighter pilots who were very successful. This one in particular, Heinz Schnaufer, shot down 121 aircraft, of which 114 were, were four-engine bombers, mostly RAF bombers, okay, each one containing seven men. Okay. He survived the war and inherited his father's wine estate and was killed two years after the end of the war when a barrel of wine fell off a lorry and hit him in his open sports car. If you were in an aircraft, if you're one of the 55,000 Bomber Command crewmen in a four-engine aircraft and that aircraft was hit, your chance of jumping out or bailing out of a Lancaster is one in 10 because they made the hatch too small and they never fixed that. So they were piled up at the hatch, desperately trying to get out, fighting the forces of gravity and the flames that are taking over the aircraft, trying to get out through this little hatch. You can imagine the panic. One man might get out and the others would die, or two men might get out. In Halifax, two in 10, slightly bigger hatch. Most likely to die on your first one, missions one through four. As I said, stats for surviving a tour equal zero. The night fighters are coming in. Lincoln Lynch, DFM, tail gunner from Jamaica, who served with 102 Squadron, shot down a Messerschmitt night fighter on his first operational flight. He was a gentleman. He shot the night fighter's engine with his machine guns. Then he realized that it was on fire. And he then held fire while the German pilot and his crewman climbed out and jumped off the back of the airplane. And then he resumed firing and shot the rest of the airplane out of the sky. So quite a nice man. He survived. He, he actually passed away very recently. Leslie Giltz of Trinidad, Sergeant Dickinson. Dickinson survived. Giltz went down in the North Sea. His body was never recovered. Fabulous photograph. That's not a posed picture. These men are friends working together, facing the same challenges. And so they finished their tours. This, as John Blair said, was a war that had to be fought. Some men had been shot down and taken prisoner. Johnny Smythe in Stalagluf 1, Cy Grant in Stalagluf 3, the scene of the famous Great Escape. There's a black character in that film, and everybody said, this is just ridiculous, political correctness, where have they got a the black character? There was actually a black prisoner in Stalagluf 3, and so that character is based on Cy Grant. When he arrived at Stalagluf 3, he was met by the commandant, Oberst Friedrich Wilhelm Gustav von Lindeiner genannt von Wildau, okay, who I will now call Lindeiner who took pains to ensure that Grant was well-treated. In fact, he met him at the gate. He'd been in the newspaper. This is the newspaper clipping. And everybody was expecting this man at, at Stalaglyph III. And the commandant stood at the gate with his, some of his officers waiting for his arrival. And when he arrived, he said, welcome to Stalaglyph III. It's wonderful to see you. Where are you from? And he said, Guyana, British Guyana. And he said, excellent, I've been there. Now you and you, take care of him. Okay? And from that point on, he was looked after very well, had no issues of racism uh, from the Nazi authorities. The only challenge he faced was with a man from the southern states, the US, who kept calling him the N-word and just couldn't factor into his world, his, his reality, the existence of a, of a black RAF officer, he just couldn't handle it. So, so that's the only problem he faced. 
He uh, was actually rescued uh, by the Soviet Red Army, as was Smythe in 1945. And again, had no issues, it was taken care of, well taken care of by the Soviets, and uh, repatriated to, to Britain. So, things are nuanced. It's not as cut and dried as, uh, as we think. There was racism, of course, and millions of people died as a result, but at the same time, the same culture that was perpetrating the Holocaust was looking after a black man in Stalag III. So there are individuals who, who, who acted with honor. And in fact, when the commandant of Stalag III was put on trial for war crimes, his former prisoners came and gave evidence in his defense, and he was acquitted. So there were good and bad, obviously, on all sides. 80 missions. The compulsory number was 50. Ulrich Cross did his 50 and then volunteered for another tour of 30 and completed 80 missions as a navigator in Mosquito uh, aircraft from, from Trinidad, passed away last year and became, he became the highest decorated uh, black volunteer. And John Blair and Arthur Wint um, from Jamaica, who served together uh, as a navigator and a pilot, both volunteered for the, the elite Pathfinder Force, were accepted and went into training, but the war ended before they flew. Uh, Blair became a lawyer after the war. Wint became twice a two-time gold medal uh, winner for Jamaica at the Olympics, um, and then a doctor. Uh, he was the only doctor in a parish of 76,000 people, hardworking men. And just in closing, again, this misconception of these men as being um, puppets or dupes or um, brainwashed people who were subject to colonial education, so wrong, I think. You know, they were extremely proud. They became involved in the independence movements of their countries. They became, many of them became leaders, okay? Errol Barrow, former RAF officer, became the, 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 the prime minister of Barbados, for example. Uh, Michael Manley, Norman Manley, his father, had served before him in the First World War. But, they were, but these were very left-wing in many cases, you know, very focused uh, ideologues who believed in independence, but they still served during the war and they remained proud of it. And so when you look at Errol Barrow's tombstone, Flying Officer Errol Walton Barrow, Navigator, Royal Air Force, World War II, and, incidentally, Prime Minister of Barbados. <laughs> That's a man who was proud of what he'd done. And I'll give the last word to Johnny Banks, my uncle's best friend, a former Mosquito Navigator, um, shown here in 1995 at the Victory Over Japan Day celebrations. I went to fight for freedom, for Jamaica, and for all the little countries of the world that would otherwise be controlled by bullies. And I think there he sums up the entire story. So I thank you for your attention, and I'd be happy to take any questions or, or comments. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>